We are in our series on Habakkuk, and we've come to a pretty tough passage. And as we really enter into this passage, if I could come up with a theme for it or a title for it, it is, what do you do when God doesn't make sense or when God's way seems wrong? God has this way of taking us to a place that doesn't make a lot of sense to us. The Bible talks about this. It says that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. It says that in order to live, you have to die. It takes us in places. God does this in many different ways. We can see this example throughout the Scriptures, where God calls us to do something that seems contrary to our natural thinking. A great example is in the book of Genesis with Abraham. Abraham was promised a son, a son through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And no sooner had this son been born in a quite miraculous fashion that God calls him to do the unthinkable, to sacrifice his son. How does it make sense? What do you do? He obeyed, and God did the miraculous. But what do we do? How do we respond when God leads us to a place in our lives? I mean, we have this way of trying to control God and making God fit and and operate in certain ways. But God is not beholden to us. It's like the story of this, the African theologian, Augustine, who was walking along the beach one day contemplating the very nature of God when he saw a little boy taking a pail and trying to put all this water in this hole that he had dug on the beach. And he stopped the little boy, and he said, what are you doing? And the boy kept running back and forth, running back and forth. And and the little boy said, I'm not going to stop until I get the entire ocean in this little hole. And that's what many of us try to do with God. God is so great, so big, so fantastic, and we want him to operate in a certain way. But God does not operate always in the way that we understand. He takes us to places. He allows us to go into situations, and he allows certain factors to come into our lives that makes us wonder, where is God? What are you doing? And today we're entering into a place, actually, as we look in the dialogue of Habakkuk, and he is dealing with that very, very question. I gave a bit of a background on what was going on because it's, it's imperative that when we look at the Word of God, we need to understand what the context of what was going on in any book, in any situation. If we do not understand and examine the context of the, the prophet or what was going on at that time, we can take verses out of context and use them for our own benefit. But that is misinterpreting and misunderstanding the Word of God. We cannot make the Bible mean what the author in, uh, didn't intend it to mean. We have no business of reading our own meaning in and interpreting it every, any way we want to. Our society today is guilty of saying, well, that's what it means to you. Now, let's take that same logic and we would apply that to a stop sign. And some would say it's a suggestion. And, and you would say maybe it's a suggestion, but yet you expect that person as you pull up to it to stop. Right? Same with flying a plane. You don't want any person stepping into the cockpit of the plane that you're flying going, I'll fly this any way I want it to. Suddenly, you're like, wait a minute, there's a certain way to fly the plane. (laughs) 
And there needs to be a certain way that it should be, should be done. We want it one way. And it's the same with the Word of God. There is one way that the author interpreted, and it's the divine author, gave the Word of God for us. But there are many applications to that to different facets or parts of our life. And today we're going into some very murky water. Habakkuk is trying to understand why God would allow evil to occur in the life of his people Israel. God had ordained that the nation uh, or the Chaldeans, which were a different people group, a different tribe, a different land, different country, why he would use such a wicked nation to be the rod on, of, uh, or God's disciplining rod for Israel. He could not fathom it. He could not understand. Why would God use such an evil people to accomplish his purpose in the life of Israel? It didn't make sense. If we were to give a modern way of understanding it, it would be like this. It would be like ISIS come in and conquering us. And we would say, why would that occur? Why would God do that? Look how evil they've done. Look at all the things that they've done. How could he do this? And that's exactly what he's done. But it leads us to a question, because many of us, we, we're not going to face a circumstance that massive, but we are going to face circumstances in our own life that's going to cause us to, do, to ask the question, what do we do when God doesn't make sense or when God's way seems wrong? What do we do? What do you do when life seems to not make sense the way that you wanted it to? How do we respond to that? What do we do when we see the wicked going on and getting everything that they want and we seem to be suffering? They have no care in the world while we're left in sorrow. What do we do when our, our, our boss or someone cheats and then we end up being the one blamed and we're fired? How do we get through that? How do we respond to that when we're suffering because of someone else's choice? Or maybe what, what, how do we respond when, when God leads us to this place that just seems to violate all of our logic? Well, today, I'm going to ask that we open up our hearts and ask God to speak to us by His Spirit through His Word that we might find faith and help in our time of need. So let's ask God to be with us and direct our thoughts as we explore this question together. What do we do when God doesn't make sense? Let's pray and ask for Him to illuminate our hearts. O oh Lord our God, You are God. Besides You, there is no other that you are magnificent, you are awesome. Your ways are beyond our ways, and yet we know that you are good. And Lord, help us to understand when evil seems to triumph in our lives and we're suffering. Lord, help us to know how to trust in you despite what's going on around us. And Lord, glorify your name in our lives and speak to us as your people and as your church. For your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's jump right in. We've already laid out the situation. God has decreed that the Chaldeans are going to come to be his rod to Israel's backside. But this bothered Habakkuk, and so he voices his complaint by asking a question in verse 12. He's speaking to God and says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? 
Now, he's so bothered by what's going on that he goes to God for answers. And that's the first point we need to understand, is that when God's way seems wrong or he doesn't make sense, we have to register our problem with God, to run to God with our issues, with our struggles. Now, let me ask you this, to pause for a moment. What are you going through right now that's causing you to question? And have you taken that to the Lord? Have you asked him why you're going through this? Have you asked for him to, to give an understanding? Maybe you're, you're single and you want to be married and God hasn't brought up that mate. Or maybe you're wondering why your spouse is, is not loving you the way that they're supposed to. Or maybe you're wondering why you haven't been able to have children. Or maybe you're, you're wondering to know why I know someone who's going through this addiction in my family and they're struggling. And Why? Why? Why am I going through this? Why did I get fired? Why did I lose my salary? Why did I lose my home? Why, why did this evil happen to me? Why did you allow that, God? Now, we have to, to run to God, to register our problems with God or complaints. But we have to be careful. Not every complaint that we have is right or just and should be brought to God. Some are le- illegitimate and are a rejection of God's sovereignty. Here's what I mean. The Israelites had a history of after seeing God work, they questioned um, His goodness. For example, they were brought out of Egypt. They had seen the plagues that had been wrought on the Egyptians, all ten of them. They'd seen time and time again God provide, God sustain. Then they walked through the Red Sea. They saw the the sea split into two, walked across on dry ground, came into this land. And then they saw the, the very Red Sea go right back over and crush the Egyptian army. They'd seen God's hand time and time again, and still it wasn't enough. And they're constantly complaining to Moses. They get to the new place and they're like, well, this wasn't like Egypt. We had a lot of food in Egypt. Why don't we have any food now, Moses? Man, we could go back to Egypt. It was great back there. Why'd you bring us here? They're they're thirsty. They're hungry. They're complaining about the food. God gives them water from a dry rock. He gives manna from heaven. He sends them quail and they're never satisfied. And so they come to God complaining, why this, why this, why this? Now, They, though, this is where their complaint was wrong, and God ends up judging them for it, because what they really had was unbelief. And see, unbelief seeks to undermine God. But then there is the other side of it, people that complain or call out to God with a question, and they are believing, seeking to understand. So there's undermining, or or disbelief seeking to undermine, and then there is belief seeking to understand. So there's two types, and you, you're the only one that can know your heart. Now, I gave you an example of this, but here's an example of one over here. John the Baptist is a great example of someone who was believing but wanted to understand. Amazing guy. Matter of fact, Jesus said that no one born among women was greater than John the Baptist. Did you know that? The greatest man to ever live. But yet, he said, the person who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You know why he could say he was so great and yet least in the kingdom of God? Because John the Baptist died before Jesus could. He was a recipient. He wasn't a recipient of the salvation that Christ enabled then. But John the Baptist comes on the scene, and he is an amazing guy. He is forthright. He is bold. He is zealous. He's preaching. He doesn't care what people think. Matter of fact, he speaks out to the, uh, against the ruler of the land, a guy named Herod. And he calls out Herod. And Herod, he says, Herod, it's wrong for you to have your brother's wife. Because see, Herod, Herod was quite...
quite the scandal in the ancient world. He decided that he really liked his brother's wife, so he ends up uh, divorcing his wife, and then they get together, come together as a couple. And John the Baptist is like, no, that's wrong. It's wrong for you to have it. And Herod the, Herod the king's like, I'm the king. You can't talk to me like that. And so he has him arrested and put in jail. And we know if, you, if you're familiar with the story, you know what happened next. He languishes in jail for some time. And Herod ends up having a party. And it's a, it's a, it's a party to end all parties. I mean, this is a massive party of celebration. And Herod's throwing this party. He's got the disco ball going. The DJ's pumping in the background. I mean, if we could put it in modern terms, this is a party, right? Everybody's having a good time. A lot of honored guests that are there. He's trying to show off his money, how great he is. When his stepdaughter comes out, and she does a dance. And uh, the way that the text lays it out is it's pretty hot. Nowhere else to put it. I mean, it is risque. And it's to the point where Herod's like, oh, yeah, I like this. I like this. By the way, the Bible's not G-rated. Bible is not G-rated. And she's dancing so much that he stops and says, stop the music, stop the music, man. This is awesome. Everybody's like, yeah, going off. Herod, Herod, you're the man. And he's like, you know what? You are so good at what you're doing. You look so good right now, so fine. I want to give you half the kingdom. Up to half my kingdom. Ask me whatever you want and I'll get it for you. And she's all excited. She's probably young, like 14, 15 years old. So she runs off to her mom. Now remember, John the Baptist had called out the marriage and said it was illegal, so she's illegitimate. So she's not happy. She's holding a grudge. So she, she says, here's what she asked for, the head of John the Baptist. So she comes out, and everybody, he's like, yeah, what you want, honey? What you want? I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter right now. And it says John's countenance fell. See, even though John put him in prison, I mean, Herod, excuse me, put John in prison, he said, it, the text says in, in the book of Mark that he liked to hear him. He would be entertained by him. But when he'd get conviction, he'd, he'd push him away. He didn't want to obey. He liked the conviction. He liked the entertainment value of it. But now he liked John. But how he's, got, he's in front of his guests. What does he do? You made a promise in front of everybody, all your friends, all the people that are influenced, that you want to impress. What do you do? You made a promise, so he follows it through. Since the executioner kills John the Baptist, cuts his head off, and brings a head on a platter. It says that John's disciples came, took his body away, and buried it. This is a pretty bad end of his life, huh? And see, though, when John, though, was in prison, he was struggling. He was struggling. I mean, think about it. If you were to put locked up for a few days, some of you have been there for a while, what, what, you begin to think about things. And John the Baptist was struggling when he was in prison. He had a crisis of faith. See, remember, John's duty was to bring about and be the forerunner for the coming Messiah. He was to, to make a way straight for the coming Lord. And so he's doing his job. He's baptizing people when Jesus shows up. And John stops and goes, wait a minute. You, Jesus says, I don't want to be baptized. He goes, wait a minute. It's I should be baptized by you. You, you don't have any sin. I mean, you're an amazing guy. I've, I've been around you. I've seen you. I know your ministry. I know your life. As a matter of fact, you're better than I am. I should be baptized by you. And what did Jesus say? Let it be so now to fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus didn't need to be baptized. He had no sin. What was he saying? He was saying that I need to identify with sinful man. And by by acknowledging this baptism, I'm taking what people need and I'm making it as my own to show that I'm with them and I'm taking their sins upon myself. He's identifying with him. And so John's like, yeah, he's the Messiah. He's the one. He even tells his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God, it takes away the sin of the world. You guys go follow him. That's it. He's the king. He's the one I came for. 
And so then John gets arrested after he's speaking out against Herod, and he's sitting in prison, and he's going, this does not make sense. How do I, why am I in prison? Why do I have to be in here right now? If he's the true king, and I'm the forerunner of the true king, then why am I subject to this nasty, immoral, earthly king who totally just trampled God's law? It doesn't make any sense to me. So see, he, he had a faith, but he, he actually sends off his disciples, and he goes, can you go talk to Jesus? I can imagine him, too. He's like, I need you to talk to Jesus. I need you to ask him a question. Okay, John, what's the question? Are you the one who wants to come, or should we expect somebody else? And the disciples are like, wait a minute. He just he said he was the Lamb of God. Okay, we'll do it. We'll do it, John. And they go to Jesus. And they said, um, Jesus, we don't want to disturb you, but John has a question. He's in prison. You know that. Um, he wants to understand, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? That's, he said it. That's what he said. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> that's what he said. And you know what it says it does? It says in the text, it says this is the only time Jesus ever did this. He goes off and he does any miracles to show them. To show them. And he goes back and he looks at him and he goes, go tell John everything you just saw and heard. See, and he does that to kind of appeases John. You see, John had this crisis of faith where he's saying, I have a problem. I don't understand why you're allowing this evil to happen to me. If you are the king of the universe and you are the lamb of God, you are the true ruler, why is this evil happening to me? Now, let me ask you a question. What are you dealing with right now? And are you taking that problem to God? And is it a real crisis of faith where you want to understand Or is it a means of trying to excuse and enable your disbelief and disobedience? Which is it? Because that's what it comes down to. That's what it is. It's either a belief that seeks to understand, or it's a disbelief that seeks to undermine. And see, we have to to ask, and we we know our hearts, and we have to drag our problem to God. See, God has no problem with us seeking answers from him. No problem whatsoever. There are some that are taught you're never to question. That's not true. Look at the scriptures. Time and time again, we see in the Psalms, How long, O Lord, how long? How long must I go through this evil? How long will it feel like you neglect me? How long, Lord, till this is answered, till the wicked are judged? How long? There is this understanding of questioning God, but as a means of understanding, not as a means of undermining. We have to ask that question of ourselves. Are we truly seeking answers to understand? And here we can see from Habakkuk's complaint that his problem, I mean, he wanted to understand, and he understood and understood that this problem and his issue was supported by God's nature and God's ways. Supported by God's nature and God's ways. Now, here's what I mean by that. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, are you not from everlasting? He starts off with this understanding that God existed in eternity past. The wording here means that from former days, meaning that you've, you're everlasting. You've been around forever. And he says, oh, Lord, the Yahweh. He, he actually is the word Yahweh, my God specifically, my holy one, meaning that you are unique. You are completely different. He's not just saying generic God, God, why are you doing this? He's saying you are the God of the Bible. You are the God has revealed himself in time, but yet you are so much greater. You are holy. You are separate. Now we shall not die. You're not, you're not out to kill us, O Lord. 
But you've ordained them as a judgment, meaning the Chaldeans are come to judge us. And you, O rock, another title of God, saying, have established them for reproof. You, and he really elaborates on God's nature here. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Meaning that God, because he is a God of justice, because he is a holy God, he cannot be tempted by evil and he must punish sin. Did you know that? God must punish sin. He has to. It's part of who he is. He has to punish sin. And, and, and that's what Habakkuk understood. And he goes, you who are of purer eyes, you are so holy that you can't even begin. Evil cannot stand in your presence except without your allowance. And you cannot look at wrong without responding in justice and correcting it. Why do you idly look at these traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. He's invoking God's holiness and his sovereignty. Evil cannot be in God's presence unless he allows it for a time. He is so holy, so pure, that evil cannot boast. And evil cannot be tolerated. And God's nature requires a response. That's why sin must be punished. And why man may seem to get by with it for a time. God's nature requires that he must punish evil. Now, let me try to, to explain this a little bit and why God must punish sin. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I got to go on a senior trip. I came from a very small school in uh, East Central Illinois, and we had a small class, public school, but every year the senior class got to go to Washington, D.C. And we would go to Washington, D.C., and we would go to tour around in different places. And it's the first time that I ever got to go and see a Holocaust museum. I don't know if you've ever been to a Holocaust museum before, but it jars you to know what uh, the Jewish people went through in, during World War II. Uh, and you see the pictures of their emaciated bodies. You see the gas chambers. You see bodies, naked bodies piled on top of one another, just shorn, just disease-ridden. The, the abuse that occurred is, just makes you want to vomit. And then I, in Israel, I got to go to another Holocaust museum, and it, it was even more striking then. And it surprises me when I was coming back from Liberia, and I was on the plane, and I got to see a movie called Denial. And it's a movie about a guy who, uh, in, in Europe, who denied the Holocaust ever happened. And it went to a court case. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but there are actually um, 17 countries in Europe have laws that um, criminalize denying the Holocaust occurred. That seems strange. Why would I have to have a law about that? Because it was so horrific to the people that went through it. And they don't want it to be repeated again, that they wanted people to understand that this did occur. And when someone says it doesn't happen, it violates every sense of their being and person sense of justice to say that it didn't occur. It's like saying now, let's go 50 years from now in the United States, and you have great-grandchildren rise up and said, September 11th never happened. And you'd go, no, it did. It, it did. I, I saw it. And, and, I, and, and, it would, and you'd, they'd say no and just dismiss it. That'd bother you. And so that's what happened in, with the Holocaust deniers. And you know, there are people, some people that deny sin. We have a tendency to do, to do that. But that's a violation of God's nature where God goes, no, you did sin. He feels the same way when he sees someone deny the Holocaust about sin. And that's why the Bible says the person who denies that they have sin is a liar. And see, when you deny sin, there's no Savior. There's no need to even send a Savior. And so to say that to God and, and to say that God won't, that he's not punishing sin, it's meaning you're violating your nature, God, 
And you see, when, when Habakkuk has got his, his complaint before God, he's saying it's supported within your word. You are holy. The Bible says you're holy. The Bible says that you are just. The Bible says that you are immovable and you change not. And you're not like the, the gods of the ancient world, which were quite arbitrary. If you ever read any ancient history or you study like Egyptology or you study the pantheon of, of Roman gods and Greek goddesses, you had all these different gods that were just basically would do whatever they felt like in the moment. And they were complete arbitrary in how they responded and interacted. They were just a little bit better than humans, but basically they were just, they were personified like humans, even with sin. But this God, no, he's different. He is, he has to punish sin. He is completely just. And so to let sin go by seems to violate God's sovereign rule seems to violate God's sovereignty. And I understand we're in deep water, by the way. I understand that this isn't just take home, put it in your pocket, and apply to your life right away. This is some hard stuff. But that's what's going on. He's saying, Lord, why do you allow this? Why do you allow them to come against us like this? It seems to violate your sovereignty. It seems to violate everything that I know. Now, we can get a picture of this. If you would just imagine for me a moment that you are the conductor of an orchestra. You know each of the musicians in the group by name. You know their talent level and what they are good at playing. Now, imagine you have the best violinist in the world there. His talent is unbelievable. He deserves first chair. But instead, uh, a guy who is not very good walks up and sits in the first chair before the, the best one comes in, in the world comes out. And this guy starts playing, and he's terrible. The concert is about to begin, and the first chair has a solo. What do you do? If you could continue to let him play, that will violate your job as a conductor to give them the best that you can possibly give, and it would frustrate everyone around because they know that guy doesn't deserve to be there. Everyone's going to be angry at him and at you because you didn't fix it. And that's what Habakkuk is saying here, is the Chaldeans were the unbelievers sitting in the deserving spot, and it drove Habakkuk to question the divine conductor how he could allow them to keep playing even though they weren't qualified. Now, many of you are in a similar position right now. Many of us are in a similar position. How could God allow such evil to happen to us? How could he allow the wicked to prosper? See, that's where we need to rethink our perspective to make sure that we have the facts straight. Rethink our perspective. Look at verse 14. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. See, Habakkuk transitions and begins to think about how God made people. And rather than continuing to question God, he stops to think about the state of man. He notices that God made man like the fish of the sea and various sea creatures going about in all kinds of directions. He's trying to see things from God's point of view to make sure that he understands. And oftentimes, our perspective is limited. We don't have the full picture. Each year, our family goes on a vacation, a small vacation, usually to see some family or friends, and we stay with them. And we've come up with this tradition that we buy a puzzle. Uh, about a thousand pieces, and when we get to the location, we throw it on the table, and then over the next week, people come in at different times and just start putting the puzzle together, and you have free time as you talk and, and carry on. It's kind of a fun thing to do, and we've done different puzzles in every state we've gone to, and this past year, we went to visit some friends in Pennsylvania, and they had a puzzle for us, which was pretty cool, of uh, all these different lighthouses in New England, and so we're putting it together, and one late one night, I'm sitting there looking at the, one of the puzzle pieces, and it's been like 15 minutes, and I can't find where this piece goes. And it drives me nuts. And so I'm studying the cover, the, the cover of the, the puzzle. You do that, right? You take a piece and you look at it. Say, like, where does that 
fit? Where does that fit? See, what, what Habakkuk is doing is he's saying, this is the problem that I see going on, and I'm going to take it up to the lens of God's person that's revealed within his word to see where it fits. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I don't get it. It fits. I know it fits. But I don't know how it fits or where it fits. And that's what he's calling us to do, is to rethink our perspective, to change it, to get a bigger picture, to see where things are. Now, Habakkuk transitions again, changing from God to the Chaldeans, who now are fishing, of all things. He says in here, verse 15, he brings, and he's personifying the Chaldeans as one person. He brings all of them up with a hook, the the fish, these men. He drags them out up with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. In other words, the Chaldeans do whatever they want to people. And he's having a hard time to understand that, that this guy now is rejoicing and is glad. Now, what can we learn from this? What does this mean? And why is this important? It is a, rem- a reminder to us to remember that God allows evil for a time. God will allow evil to go into your life for his purpose. Now, that, that's, not a fun, that's not a fun message. That's not an exciting message. That's not fun where people get excited about. But it's true. God will allow evil to happen to you for a greater reason than you can understand. Classic example Joseph. If you're familiar with Joseph's life, Joseph does nothing wrong except dr- have some dreams. He gets his, becomes his dad's favorite son. A dad gives him a coat. His brothers are jealous of this coat that he has. And so his brothers decide to sell him into slavery. I mean, I've already, I mean, I've got, my family's got issues, but I've never yet that I know I've had a brother try to sell me into slavery. And he sells him into slavery. And then when he's there, he's mistreated. He ends up in prison in Egypt, not the kind of place you want to be in prison. And in the middle of all this, God is working. And God takes him out of that prison and ends up exalting him to the position of second in charge of all of Egypt. And that's when his brothers come. He ends up taking care of millions of people. And what does he say to his brothers? You intended evil, but God used it for good. Know that the evil that you go through the evil that God allows you to experience is still somehow will end for your good. But it involves us changing our perspective to understand that. Now notice the next part. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. Now again, these are the Chaldeans who are now personified as this fisherman. He sacrifices to his net. In other words, he's worshiping his net and he makes offerings to this dragnet. He's worshiping it, which seems weird. And he says, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. In other words, what he's saying here is that they're wealthy, they have power, and now they're worshiping their power. They're worshiping themselves, their own abilities. Now notice something. Whenever we turn from God, we have to replace that with something else. Nature abhors a vacuum. And when man fails to acknowledge God's power, and he must replace it with something. That's the next part. We have to understand that God is sovereign, and we have to think, rethink our perspective even when man fails to acknowledge God's power. And we see that all in our society today. We see it on, with celebrities. We see it on TV. We see it in the media. We see it in other nations. We see people all the time that fail to acknowledge God's power and see him for who he is and seem to go on their merry way without any problem or care in the world. Now, how do we do that? We have to think of our perspective and understand that God is doing and allowing something for a time and for his own reason. 
But we have to understand that even those who fail to acknowledge God's power, that doesn't mean that God's not going to act. And we have to understand that nature abhors a vacuum. And when you fail to acknowledge God's power, you have to replace it with something. Replace it with something. For example, um, how many have ever heard of Richard Dawkins? Anybody ever heard of a guy named Richard Dawkins? Richard Dawkins is a guy who wrote a book called God Delusion. And he is a, probably a very militant atheist, if I could give him that terminology. I don't want to mischaracterize him. But a militant atheist, and he's an intellectual, so he draws a lot of intellectual people. And they asked him, because he denies Christianity, he rejects it, and he, they say to him, uh, then if God isn't the creator of the universe, where did life originate? And you know what his response was? He said it was a happy chemical accident. A happy chemical accident. All that we know, everything that we experience, love, feelings, uh, nature all around us, the order that we see within our world, the order that we explore, even as we do examine science and seeing how God orchestrated or, or math or literature or music, all this is just one happy chemical accident? That makes zero sense. Now, you ask another, na- another philosopher, atheist, by the name of Michael Roos, who is no friend of Richard Dawkins, and they asked him the same question, where does life originate? And he said, life originated on the back of crystals. And you think, I'm nuts? But that's where we're at in our world today. That's where people are at. I mean, we, 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 you take it out, and you have to replace it with something. You have to find something to replace it with. You take God away, you've got to find some type of reasoning for it. When you take God out of your life, you take God's power out of your life, that you're going to have to worship something. It might be yourself, it might be your own pleasure, your own entertainment, your own way that people think of you, your own status, whatever it might be. And you will end up worshiping it and you will hate it because it's idolatry and it cannot satisfy you. And we have to acknowledge God's power. And remember, the fool is the one that says there is no God. That's what Psalm 14.1 says. The fool says in his heart there is no God. When you take God out, you must replace it with something. And Habakkuk notes it, that they took God away, they don't acknowledge your power, and now they're, like, they're left worshiping their own abilities and their own nets, which can't do anything. They think it's by that they have power and they have luxury. When it's you that has exalted him, for a reason I cannot begin to understand, but you're doing something that I I don't know why you're doing it, but I have to trust. So we have to know that there are many people in the world who fail to acknowledge God's power, but as believers, we can know this. God will surely act and respond. He will surely act. Look at verse 17. Is he then keep on emptying his net and mercifully killing nations forever? Is it going to go on forever, God? Is this are the Chaldeans are going to be killing everybody forever? And he stops, pauses, and thinks. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say. Now he's talking about God and what I will, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So what he's saying there is he's invoking this language of, I'm going to take my position in the tower. Now, in the ancient world, there were these towers that were really tall, and it had watchers on there that would see any un, uh, you know, incoming armies. And then these, they would warn the people so they could brace themselves and prepare for battle. The watchman's job was extremely important. And he's saying there, I'm going to take my spot here because I know God's going to act. He will act. I'm going to ask him these questions. I'm going to present it to him, but he is going to act and respond in his own way and in his own time. 
Now, the thing is, for many of us, we don't believe that God's going to act or respond to our situation because we think our situation is not that big a deal to God. Let me tell you something. No situation that we go through, if you really think about it, will ever be that big deal to God. Even our, our biggest things are still little to Him. They're still little to Him. But yet, He does care. See, we forget he is transcendent and beyond us, but he's imminent, meaning that he is close to us. And he is ready, and he tells us to to trust in him, to cast our burdens on him, and that he will respond. The problem is that many of us don't believe that God will respond. Now, I was reminded of this yesterday. I saw a video of Francis Chan. Francis Chan is a a pastor, and he was telling the story about how he was out in his yard one day working when two Jehovah Witnesses came up to him, two women. And they said, do you mind if we talk to you? And he goes, only if you don't mind if I talk to you. And so they said, well, uh, we want to tell you about, he goes, hold on, can I tell you about something God's been doing in my life? God has answered some pretty amazing prayers recently, and I really want to share this with you. And she's like, "Uh, you know, God doesn't answer every prayer and every person. He goes, you know, you're biblically, you are right on. You know, the book of James says that if I, if I have doubt in my heart, God's not going to answer. And he says in James chapter 4 that if I have wrong motives, he won't answer. And he says in Isaiah 58 that if, that if I fast and pray, but I don't t- take care of the poor people, that even if I pray, God won't, God, God won't answer. Matter of fact, in Amos, it says that God doesn't even want to hear our prayers and song because he, our hearts aren't right unless we humble ourselves before him then you're absolutely right. God does not answer all prayers, but he answers mine. And he started to tell him how God answered, and the woman was like, whoa, wow, that, that's crazy. <laughs> that's, that's unbelievable that, uh, that God would do that. And he says to him, he said to her, explain that. Why does God listen to me? And she said, uh, we need to leave now. So she, they started to leave, and she goes, uh, you know, we need to leave now. And he goes, if you don't mind, can I walk with you as you leave? <laughs> and he started walking. So that's pretty bad if you can make Jehovah's Witnesses want to leave. Uh, and he's, he's walking with him, and he's telling story after story. And he goes, tell me, why would God answer me? Why would God answer me? Why would God do that? Why would God, the creator of the universe, answer my request? Now let me ask you that. Why would God answer your request? Because you're his child. He wants you to ask of him. But see, many of us don't believe that he will answer when we do ask. We lack faith. I think many of us are like the early church was in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 12, uh, we come upon a scene where Peter has been put in prison. He's languishing in prison. He's chained between two guards and he's sleeping. Everybody's tired. It's late at night. But it says that in Mary's house, not far away, that the church is earnestly, there's a group of believers gathered together. They're praying and interceding, asking God to free Peter. Then then something amazing happens. An angel shows up, nudges Peter, says, wake up. His chains fall off. He gets up. He believes he's having a vision. And so the, the angel leads him out of the of the first guard, the second guard, and then out the gate, and he looks around, and the angel's gone. He realizes this was not a vision, that this was a miracle. And so he runs to go tell the people at the church, and so he knocks on the door. Knock, 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 knock. Now, the church is nervous because they knew that church Christians were being rooted out. And so they sent the, the servant girl to the door, and she doesn't answer the door right away. She goes, who is it? And Peter's like, it's me, it's Peter. And she recognizes his voice. She's like, it's Peter. So she runs back to everybody. She goes, we've been praying. It's Peter. Peter's here. And what do they say? You are out of your mind, girl. 
wait a minute. You were just praying about this very thing, and they're surprised that God answers. That's how many of us are. But she kept insisting, no, it was Peter. And they, and, and, and they kept saying, it's his angel. Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw that it was him. They were amazed. See, I think that's how many of us are with prayer. We're more like that than anything else. We're surprised when God answers. But God doesn't want us to be surprised. God wants us to take him at his word, to know that he will act in his own timetable time and in his own way. And when I say his own way, I don't want to neuter that. And what I mean by that is this. I see so many Christians, they say, God still does miracles. It's a miracle the sun came up this morning. That's not what I mean when I say that God does miracles. But we've so neutered it. God does, yes, God does that, and it's a miracle, but not in the same sense. God does miraculous. He works in our lives, and he responds to our prayers. Now, it may not be in the way we want, but we have to know that God will act in his own way. The last verse I want us to look at today is in chapter 2, verse 1, because the thought continues on. When he says again, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. See, if we believe that God is going to act, then we have to remember to be patient. We are an impatient people. When God doesn't operate in the time frame and in the way that we want and that we put forth, we try to take matters into our own hands and justify our own disobedience because we say God didn't answer. Well, God didn't answer in the criteria you set forth, but he answered in a totally totally different way. God is not beholden to your understanding that is very limited. He will operate in his own way. It's like the story of Abraham and Sarah. God appears to Abraham and says, you're going to have a son, and he is going to bless all the earth. And he looks at his wife and goes, it ain't going to happen with her. So he takes matters into his own hands, basically, and Sarah agrees. She's like, here, take my maidservant, Hagar, and that child will be the promised child. He says, all right, we'll do that. Let's do it. Let's do it your way. Got to make this promise happen. Gets her pregnant, has a child. God shows up and goes, that's not what I meant. No, not through her, through her. See, we have to be patient. He wasn't patient. He took matters into his own hands. What right now are you going through that you have to exercise patience, but you really don't want to? It might be in relating, re, waiting for a spouse or waiting to get married. Maybe, maybe you're waiting on that job or that promotion or that salary. Maybe you're waiting on, on that spouse to, to come around the way that you want him to before you do what God wants you to do. What are you, what are you waiting on? It could be anything. But God is telling you to be patient and trust in me. And we get antsy because we see, God, God, you have to operate in this time. You're not doing it. You're not doing it. It's like Saul, King Saul, when he was going into battle. And he was waiting on Samuel to show up before the sacrifice would be made. And Samuel's, I mean, the people around him, the soldiers are coming at him going, hey, we got to do this thing. It's time to go. It's time is right. The enemy's right at the gates. And Saul's like, where's Samuel? Samuel, hurry up. You got to get here. You got to get here. And people are like, dude, he's not coming. Just offer the sacrifice. Let's go into battle. We can do this thing. You can do it. You're the king, right? And he goes, okay, okay, okay. So he offers the sacrifice. As soon as the sacrifice is up, Samuel walks in the door. He's like, What have you done? You took matters into your own hands. You didn't wait. You weren't patient. 
Where is God calling you to exercise patience? Patience. Now, what does it mean to be patient? I'm going to explore that for a moment in our last point. If we're to exercise compatience, that means requiring us to surrender control to God, to trust him at his word, even when it doesn't make sense. See, many of us have in this room have a hard time surrendering control to God. We want to be the captains of our own destiny. We want to tell God what we want. And see, that's where some false teachers have it. They say that God's made these promises. You can use them, and God has to obey. It's just like saying, you rub the, 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 you know, the, the, the magical lamp of the Bible, and then God, who's the genie, has to do what he wants you to do. He has to heal. He has to do it. He does not have to do what you tell him to do. That is false teaching. It's false teaching. God is not beholden to us like Aladdin and the genie. It's not like that at all. We have to surrender control. And once we surrender control, we need to make sure that we stay the course. And this is where patience is tested, where we have to wait. See, Habakkuk vowed to stand at his watch post on the tower, a protective tower that was built in the wall of his city so that a watchman could warn the people. And he had to wait. Waiting is never easy, but that's what Grandma said. Good things come to those who wait. Wait. Now, it's interesting. If I were to translate where we have a hard problem, especially in our culture today, where we have a hard time waiting, money. Money. Now, in January, our church is going to be going, Lord willing, through some Dave Ramsey material, Financial Peace University, where we're exploring how God views money. Because we want all of our life to be under the lordship of the umbrella of Christ's lordship. And that means our money. Now, I see, though, a lot of people get into trouble because they want to look like everybody else. They want to sound like everybody else. Therefore, they, want to, they have to buy like everybody else, which means they get in debt like everybody else. And a lot of times our debt is because we refuse to wait on God. I was speaking with one of our small group leaders this past week, and he was talking about a situation uh, where a family, a young couple, got into a, a, a new house, and, and they had bought all of this new furniture, the entire thing they financed. Financed. Seems like a good deal. I get it now, pay it later. Right? 90 days, same as cash. That's what you hear in the United States of America. Now let me tell you, though, about a situation where one woman was getting ready to enter into this, and she figured it up, what was going to happen. She wanted to buy this leather ottoman, uh, leather chair and ottoman. And it was going to cost, with taxes and delivery, $1,267 and some change. So get that number in your head. About $1,300, right? $1,300. And they'd paid off in 90 days, interest-free. But after the 90 days, that period expired. But then you know what happens? Something kicks in. They back, uh, they back build the interest. And so... And, they, and they, this couple committed. They knew they couldn't pay it off in the 90 days, so they agreed to pay for it over 24 months, which means that they would be paying $1,670 per month. Sounds like a good deal. $167 per month for something that costs about $1,300 over 24 months. But when you kick in interest, they actually pay, she, she would have paid $4,008. $4,008 for a thing that costs $1,300. Now, Banks know this, and credit card companies know this, and they play on the fact that they know that you can't be patient. They know that you can't pay it off. As a matter of fact, in 90 days, same as cash, you know, 88% of the people don't pay that off. 
and they depended on more money. They know, by the way, that you, you don't know how to, you're not, you're not patient. Banks know this. Do you know that they know that you're going to overspend? And they bank, they put it a part of their budget that you're going to overspend and you're going to overdraft. Do you know how much money came in last year in overdraft fees in the United States for, for, uh, for banking? $229 billion. Billion, just on overdraft fees. Because people can't wait. They want it now, want it now, want it now, want it now, want it now. I want this stuff. I want this car. I want this education. I want this house. I want this. I want this. And God is saying, wait, come back. Channel your life. Live within the means that I want you to mean. And I understand this because I made this same stupid mistake in my life. And maybe some of you are like that too, where I got my head out over my skis, thought this was God's will, and what I was using was the debt to justify what I thought was God's will, but it was really going outside of what God wanted. Do you know that? I mean, this is in the financial realm, but this is where a lot of Christians are and get into a lot of trouble, and they're hamstrung, and they're working tons of hours trying to pay this off because they made stupid financial decisions. We have to learn to live within our means and to be patient for God to raise up stuff and not go outside of that, whether it's a car, whether it's new clothes, status, new TV, new cell phone, you pick it. Now, The last part of exercising patience is learning how to rest in him, seeing it through. Faith requires patience. We need to let God work. That doesn't mean we don't work as we rest. For example, uh, when when God supplied the manna for the Israelites, they had to go get it. Okay? Some people think seeing it through means I just sit here and God does everything. God expects you to be about the tasks that he has given us to do in order to live and interact, but not to go outside of the parameters that he's laid forth within his word. And we have to learn to see it through. We have to see our lives through the, the, the lens of faith. Let me tell you something very personal to me. Uh, some of you might know that two years ago I spent some, some time fasting. I didn't tell anybody except the people that were real close to me because they started asking questions because uh, I lost some weight. And during that time, and I don't say that for my own boast, that I could care less about. But back then, I, I used to do this stuff online, and you want to show about your life and boast, and a lot of Christian leaders do this. And I realized during this time of fasting that, you know what, it doesn't matter what people think. It really doesn't matter. Because you know what? People don't change lives. God does. And I was too busy going online trying to show off humility. And it was really stupidity. And I was trying to boast. And I realized in that fasting time that the only one, and that's where faith really comes in. It really comes in when you understand at the end of the day that it's God who moves and changes people. And when you understand that, your faith takes on a new dimension. And you, you don't care much about that anymore because you realize it comes down to God to change the heart. We're too busy looking at the circumstances instead of waiting on God. And, and that was a hard lesson for me. But you know what? It's one I, I have to constantly remind myself of. And I know that as a church, we have to do the same thing. We, wanna, want, we want everybody to see us. We want to validate us because we really don't have faith for God to be the one to validate us. And that's why we have to be quiet and we have to go before God. And, and by the way, that's why prayer meetings died. It's because people started looking more at self 
than at the Savior. And our own entertainments and our own comfort, and we can't stand to pray because we don't know how to be silent anymore. That's it. I mean, the church in America is huge, but it's this deep. It's not permeating the fabric of our lives. Now, it is for some. Some are, are organizing all of their lives, whether it's their, their finances, whether it's their marriages. It's, it's not a surface faith. It's permeating deep in who they are. But that's what has to happen here. You know what? We can get crowds here. I, I remember back in the day, and, and some people that have been here for a certain time, where we, it was crickets. There was a period of time in the history of this church where, where I looked out, and there was, there was like 15, 20, 25, even like 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 people, and that's it. Now we have like over 300 people that are coming here actively. Isn't that great? Wonderful. Pat ourselves on the back. But it means absolutely nothing if some heart's not being changed. Jesus drew crowds. But do you know what he would say? He would give crowd-clearing sermons because it caused people to examine their heart because he didn't care about the crowd. Not that. He cared about the heart. It wasn't for him about building it and being a rock star or status. He didn't care about that. He cared about a heart change of an individual so that they would understand who Christ is and what it meant to be a citizen and follower of the kingdom of God and letting Christ be a part of their heart. Doesn't anyone want that? Gosh, I want that. I yearn it in my being. It bothers me day in and day out when I can't have my my life and my heart brought in that way. And I see us going along our way going, eh, no big deal. It's just optional. What does God have to do to get a, get a hold of you? That scares me to death to know what kind of discipline God would bring to wake us up. As I, I, said, I said earlier, I remember when September 11th occurred, and the next Sunday, the church was packed. People were suddenly in tragedy mode, trying to find answers. The next week, Everything went back to normal, and everybody went back their normal way. They didn't care about God. God has given us a time, and he's given us freedom. But what have we done with it? For those that have come from different countries, if you think that every person that comes to the United States is a millionaire and got it great, you're off. Matter of fact, a lot of people, the gifts that they have have turned them away from the giver, and their spiritual life is in the toilet. Not all of them, but many. And don't look at that. Sometimes I, I see people come and you like you see what everybody else has in the United States, but I look at your faith and it's dynamic. And it's rich. And then you trade it off. You get all the other stuff of the world and you lose your faith and strength in the process and it makes me hurt on the inside. In many ways, I think it's easier to follow Christ in the midst of persecution than it is in the midst of blessing. That's not always the case. I'm at my pulpit, I'm preaching. It bothers me. We have to know that God's going to act in his own way and in his own time. And it may not be in the way that we think or want, but we have to trust in that. We have to surrender control, stay the course, and see it through. Meaning that we have to understand that fog is going to clear, and one day we're going to see it. It might be in heaven. See, the, the, the heroes in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the things that the text tells us is that they did not see the promises fulfilled in their lifetime. Yet they could keep on seeing through, knowing that one day they would in heaven. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is going to be able to help you see through the circumstances of your life, your sufferings? It might be, he might let you know in this world, or he might wait to the next. But do you have faith to rest in the knowledge of that? If you don't, you need to ask God for it. 
And let's take a moment to close our time with a word of prayer. And I would encourage you to just pour out your heart and ask God to speak to you about that, what, that, really, that problem that you're dealing with. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, you care nothing about performance. You've said within your word that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And right now we offer you our heart, broken as it might be, sinful as we are, but yet you still love us and still long for us to come to you. Just like King David, who is a man after your own heart and he loved you, but yet he could be capable of such sin and we can relate to that. We know the sin in our own heart and how quickly we can rebel, but yet we also see his repentance and we're reminded within your word that a, that a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And Lord, we come to you with our questions. We come to you with our struggles. We come to you with all of our issues and we ask that you speak to us. We ask that you give us peace, that you give us direction, that you help us to, to trust in you, and that we might be like the man that Jesus, that, who said to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my, help my unbelief. Change us, direct us, and do a work here that only you can do. Lord, it's not about the crowds. Lord, it's not about all the people that fill in, but it's, it's about seeing life change happen in a marriage, in their finances, in their entertainments, as they're turning from sin and being obedient to you and seeking to expand your kingdom and share it with whoever will listen. Lord, let your rule and your reign be seen in every single cell and fabric of our being. Not for anything else but to give your name great glory. And, Lord, in your consideration and love for us, our joy. So speak to us. Help us to trust in you even when life doesn't make sense, and even when your ways seem wrong, it helps to see through for the glory, honor, and fame of your awesome, holy, life-changing, universe-rocking name. We pray this in that name. Amen.